It's Monday, November 12th, and this is The Daily Dive. Three devastating wildfires are raging all over California, causing over a quarter of a million people who are in harm's way to evacuate. At least 25 deaths have been reported, and over 100 in Northern California are still missing. My producer Miranda joins me to recap what has happened so far and what is coming next. A town called Paradise has been almost completely destroyed, and winds are picking up in Southern California that could cause more problems for firefighters. Next, Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for our weekly look at the political world. President Trump was in France over the weekend where his America First nationalism was repudiated by Emmanuel Macron, saying nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. We will also look what is going on in Florida as recounts are being done for the governor and Senate races. Finally, Uber has a secret restaurant empire that you may never have known about. Uber Eats, the food delivery service, is working with over 1,600 virtual restaurants around the world, which only exist on their platform. You can't go eat at these restaurants, but you can order delivery from them. Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News, joins us for a look at how Uber data is fueling the spread of new restaurants and food delivery. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Maybe 10 or 20 years ago, you stayed in your homes when there was a fire and you were able to protect them. Governor Brown said it last year during the Thomas fire that we're entering a new normal. Things are not the way they were 10 years ago. The fire in Butte County right now in this fire, the rate of spread is exponentially more than it used to be. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. There are three devastating wildfires occurring, two in the south and one in the north. They've forced over a quarter of a million people to evacuate from their homes. A lot of these homes didn't survive these blazes. Firefighters in the northern part of the state are battling a blaze known as the Camp Fire. In the southern part of the state, we have the Woolsey Fire and the Hill Fire. Miranda, tell us a little bit more about these three fires. The Camp Fire, like you said, is up north. It's in Butte County, and more than 105,000 acres have been burned. At this point, it's about 25% contained. There are 23 confirmed fatalities three injured firefighters, 115 people are still missing with more than 6,000 residents destroyed, including 260 commercial buildings. Yeah. And right there, that was the town of paradise that is basically wiped off the map. They said almost the entire town is gone. The Woolsey fire that's affecting people in Ventura and LA counties. Uh, You've been seeing a lot about Malibu and a bunch of celebrities, homes and things like that. What's going on there? Yeah, the Woolsey Fire is located in Ventura County and like unincorporated L.A. County, meaning Calabasas. It's 83,000 acres burned, two fatalities, 200,000 residents under mandatory evacuation and only 10 percent contained. And this is the one we really have to keep our eyes on. We'll talk about it in a minute. But the winds died down over Saturday night into Sunday morning, and they're expected to pick back up through today and into tomorrow Tuesday afternoon. The Hill Fire, Oscar, is also located in Ventura County, but more on the Simi Valley side. And that has burned 4,500 acres and it's at 75% contained. And that was the one that was really close to where the borderline bar and grill shooting was. As soon as that had happened, the fire popped up and it was like a one-two punch for that immediate area. Even some people who had been at the borderline shooting had to go home and then ultimately be evacuated a couple of hours later for fire danger. As we said multiple times here on the podcast, Miranda and I do the show out of Los Angeles. So we have a lot of coworkers here that have been affected by both the borderline grill shooting and the fire. And Mm -hmm. I just spoke to 
a work colleague earlier this morning, and he was saying that his whole town basically got that one-two punch. They knew a bunch of people that were affected by the shooting, and then immediately after, they all had to evacuate. And, you know, he was he was starting to tear up a little bit. He was getting emotional. And it's tough. People are going through the ringer on this, and, and it doesn't seem like it, there's going to be an end to it anytime soon right now. As you said, Miranda, the next concern for the Woolsey Fire, really, in Ventura County is going to be the winds. The They're called the Santa Ana winds. They expect wind gusts of up to like 40 miles per hour. And that's really the big thing. One of the fire chiefs in Ventura County said, maybe 10 to 20 years ago, you would stay in your home when there was a fire and you were able to protect them. And we're entering a new normal now. Things are not the way they were 10 years ago. Mandatory evacuations, huge Areas need to get out of the way so that these fires can be fought. And because of the way the winds carry embers, you don't know which way it's going and you don't know when a neighborhood could just go up in flames. The problem with the Santa Ana winds is that they blow in crazy directions and then all of a sudden they'll just change. And like you said, 40 mile per hour gusts, if not stronger over the next several days. So they're saying if you're anywhere near the fire zone, just evacuate immediately. Nearby Pepperdine University, the fire reached there, really didn't cause too much damage, thankfully, to the university, but students had to shelter in place. They said that classes would be canceled until after Thanksgiving. Wow. That's how bad it is right now. Well, it's because of the single digit humidity, Oscar. If anybody's been in Los Angeles or Southern California, we got one day of rain this year. So it's tough out here. Let's talk briefly about Paradise. As you said, that town is completely gone. Describe to us a little bit about it, because how can a whole town go up? And you, the way you were describing it really kind of puts it in context. It's a really small mountain town. If you are familiar with Big Bear, California, it's kind of like that one road in, one road out. You're nestled in the mountains. You're tucked into all the trees. It's at the Sierra foothills. So it's it's surrounded by beautiful nature and forestry. That's what people do is they go up to paradise to live a quiet mountain life. You don't expect this type of thing to happen. It's a lot of farming people, a lot of uh, elderly people. And there's videos of people trying to get out of the town. One of them that you showed me, Miranda, was a father trying to console his daughter as they were trying to escape, trying to evacuate. And you can see the fires big, huge on the sides of the road. Both sides. Nothing but traffic in the middle and people honking horns trying to get by. This is one of the viral videos that happened because the father was trying to keep his daughter calm. Let's hear a little portion of that. Hey, guess what? We're not going to catch on fire, okay? We're going to stay away from it. And we'll be just fine. Okay? We're doing all right. Baby, it'll be all right. Yeah. Yep. Look, we're past it. We're out of it, okay? Yay. Yay. And you can even hear some of the nervousness in that father's voice. The fires are continuing. Containment is not there yet. And uh, in Ventura County, the next big worry is all these winds. So we'll keep we'll probably touch on this again later in the week as things are developing. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. Patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. 
nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism by saying, aren't you first? Who cares about the others? Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. The president is traveling abroad over the weekend. He was in France. His brand of America first nationalism was on display. And uh, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, was kind of being a little snippy at him. He didn't mention Trump by name, but he said patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. Nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism by saying our interests first. Who cares about the others? It seems like a direct swipe at the president. How is the president doing out there and what were his reactions to what was going on? The president has struggled when traveling abroad, and we saw that again this weekend as he was in Paris. The president of France, Macron, taking a direct swipe at him along with other leaders denouncing nationalism. This comes right after President Trump a couple of weeks ago on the campaign trail declared himself a nationalist. That's clearly a very weighted term. People don't just declare themselves nationalists and not understand all of the undertones. I think any listener who hasn't really researched the term nationalist would still equate it with how we use it in America, white nationalists. And there was a lot of thought that President Trump was trying to make a nod towards that group. But even if he wasn't, even if he was just trying to say, I'm a nationalist, you can't say that without the other tones of knowing where that term comes from. And that's what Macron was saying, was that nationalists are not patriots. They're not people who love their country. They're people who engage in a dangerous level of avoiding or ignoring the outside world. The president was even tussling with reporters back here at home a few days ago when they were asking him to say you're a nationalist. What do you think about all this stuff? And I think he even told a reporter that's a racist question. Do you think that he's just trying to rebrand the term right now? Or are people in his administration talking to him, trying to counsel him on uh, on what to say about this? Because it is getting him into a lot of trouble. It is unclear what the president is trying to do. We have seen him try to rebrand or reclaim, as the term has been used, phrases in the past that he could embrace the word nationalist and get rid of the history or the ties, like I said, tying it to the term white nationalist, breaking that tie, that would be very difficult to do. And we don't have any sense that he has been counseled in a way that would suggest he would be able to break the ties that term has to groups like white nationalists. The president, however, has tried before and succeeded. Look at his use of the phrase America first. That was a phrase that was used in the run-up to the U.S. involvement in World War II by groups who felt that the U.S. should not intervene to stop the Nazis. He has managed to, with some levels of success, rebrand that phrase and get rid of sort of the historic annotations that that phrase has. So maybe he can, but still a long stretch to get to breaking the term nationalist from some of its historic tides. Let's move back home. We're still in this midterm election hangover. What is going on in Florida? Officials have said that there must be a machine recount right now for the governor's race, for the Senate race. The margins are super thin, and that's why we need this recount. But there's problems with all sorts of stuff, and and people on both sides are saying that there might be some type of fraud going on, even though officials say they haven't seen anything like that. It's the midterm elections that just won't quit. They are going to keep going. It looks like more than a week past when they were conducted. You mentioned Florida. We are going to have a machine recount, which means that they just take the machines out and they press the total button again in every county in Florida for the governor's race. But the Senate race is so close that they're going to have what's called a manual recount. They're going to take the ballots 
out and physically hand go through and recount every one of them. That means that we could be waiting at least another week to find out who won both of those races. Some of the biggest counties in Florida started recounting over the weekend, but some of the smaller counties could start today or even wait as far as Wednesday out to begin recounting those ballots. So we're days away. And President Trump really engaging in a public relations campaign to try to paint this as fraud, as theft, as someone trying to steal the election. He has been very hostile towards efforts to make provisional ballots or absentee ballots counted. And it's not just in Florida. It's also happening in Arizona. However, the difference in Arizona is that the Republican candidate, Congresswoman Martha McSally, has refused to jump onto the president's PR campaign. She will not and has not publicly so far accused her opponent of theft. And for that reason, that race is getting a little less attention. In Florida, I know in the Senate race between Rick Scott and Bill Nelson, the difference is 0.14 percentage points. So it's so close. And people are saying that the ballot was written all weird and the Senate race was like in a little corner underneath a bunch of ballot instructions and people might have just missed it. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Virtual restaurants are something that Uber Eats has begun creating, and they don't exist except in the kitchen of a restaurant with a different name and a different menu. Joining us now is Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News. This is one of the services I use a lot, different forms of it, but we're going to be talking about Uber's secret restaurant empire. I live in Los Angeles and driving around, traffic is crazy. Parking is equally as crazy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we use these food delivery services to, you know, bring us dinner or something like that. Uber Eats is one of them, Grubhub, Eat24. There's a bunch of different ones, but we're going to focus on Uber right now. And the growth of this delivery business has led to some interesting arrangements between restaurants (laughs) and these delivery services. What do we know about what they're doing? Well, it's kind of crazy. I mean, Uber Uber is growing at an incredible pace. At the end of 2015, Uber Eats was established. One thing they've done with all this data, because they have this amazing amount of data from customers and people who have their app, they know what people are ordering and they know what neighborhood they live in. And so they perceive that in some neighborhood, there's a lack of the food that people want. So in some, like in a Miami neighborhood, there weren't that many wings delivery services. And so they convinced a pizza place on Miami Beach to start a virtual restaurant called MIA Wings. And now their business went up 80% as soon as they started. So Kate, tell us what these virtual restaurants are. Virtual restaurants are something that Uber Eats has begun creating and they don't exist except in the kitchen of a restaurant with a different name and a different menu. You profiled another business also called Brooklyn Burger Factory, where it it was that very same thing where you said that Uber saw a need for more burgers in that area. And they went to that business and said, if you want to get this thing going, we'll deliver the burgers that you guys are going to put out. And now they were based out of some little cafe and now they're doing better business as a burger delivery service than they were as that cafe ever was. Exactly. Exactly. Never underestimate the power of the word burger, (laughs) even, even in an artisanal neighborhood like Brooklyn. And so in this very residential neighborhood called Crown Heights, there was a restaurant called Gerizim Cafe and Ice Cream. 
and they were trying to do West Indian food. And in fact, it's a West Indian neighborhood. It seemed like a good bet, but they weren't doing that much business. They had like one burger on the menu. They weren't delivering it. But in Crown Heights, there was a demand for burgers and nobody really delivering burgers. Uber Eats approached this cafe and was like, do you want to start a virtual restaurant called Brooklyn Burger Factory? And these people said yes. And so on August 1st, they began delivering burgers and they used to sell like seven or eight a week at Gerizem. And now they sell like 75 a day. So it's proved so popular that Gerizem is now officially changing their name to Brooklyn Burger Factory. Wow. It's a good business deal on both sides for a restaurant maybe that doesn't have the money to actually set up a big brick and mortar. Maybe they just have a kitchen. They can get started that way. And then for Uber Eats, obviously they're getting the bu- the business that way and a cut of it also from there. It reminds me there was this place locally in Los Angeles that ha- made great deep dish pizzas. It was called Hollywood Pies. And my friend turned mm-hmm. me on to it, but they didn't have a storefront. You can only call them and then pick it up. And to pick it up, you'd have to go to some weird parking lot in the middle of mm-hmm. nowhere. And then all of a sudden, a guy would just walk up to you with this pizza and hand it to you and you pay and you leave. With Uber Eats now, you know, they kind of start their virtual restaurant and not have to do it. Since then, they expanded and they started a storefront, but that's how they started. And this could be an entry point for a lot of businesses even. It's really, really smart. And it gives people, I mean, something that is cool about it in a lot of these cases is that some of the bricks and mortar restaurants are trying to do ambitious food or at least creative here in New York City. There's a restaurant called Rahi, an Indian restaurant, and they have some really cool dishes on their menu like fish curry with three kinds of mango. And it's great and it's it's actually getting some attention. But if you're sitting anywhere in that neighborhood, that's not what you're going to order. You want butter chicken. So Rahi is proud not to have butter chicken on their menu, but they're also happy to send it out to people who want to eat butter chicken at home. So it is this kind of thing. It's probably supplementing that business in the exact way that they need too. Grubhub is like the leader in this stuff and Uber Eats is on their way. They're just growing the fastest right now. One of the things that helped them specifically too was getting signed up with larger chain restaurants like McDonald's and Subway and Jersey Mike's and things like that. Even still, though, 75% of the business that Uber Eats does is with small businesses. You mentioned this before, Oscar, but one thing that Uber Eats is doing, besides working with McDonald's, is enabling small businesses because this Horizon Cafe, I'm not sure they would have stayed in business with the model that they had. And so it's a little bit of a mixed bag. There's more than enough burgers in this world, in my opinion. <laughs> so to have like one more burger place is not necessarily what this world needs for a lot of reasons. But if it helps a small business in a neighborhood like Crown Heights, then I'm happy for those business owners. And I will say it's a good use of Uber's data and they do it for free. Certainly they get a percentage of every delivery, but they approach restaurant owners and provide this data for free. Like they help them build their virtual restaurant. The company worldwide right now is dealing with 1,600 virtual restaurants. I think a thousand of them are in the U.S. That's quite a bit. It would be one thing if they were only seeing growth in big cities like your Los Angeles or my New York, but in fact they're seeing them in not big cities like Montpellier in France and like around India in second or third tier cities. Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to talk to you, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.